0: Imagine a vacation waiting outside your door when you get home. Discover a new way to escape the stress of everyday life. Picture soothing jets massaging your back, relieving all your aches and pains. Sleep soundly without medications or supplements. Call 1-877-861-4672 to get $1,250 in instant savings, including free delivery. Call 877 861 4672 now or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.
1: In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn,
2: and the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead.
1: Before we begin the episode, this week, we've got a little tidbit of business that we want to cover. You may notice that our feed is missing some of our older episodes or that those episodes are no longer live. For a couple of reasons, we have decided to go ahead and remove those episodes as they no longer reflect our podcast.
2: Right. As Paige was saying, they really feel inauthentic to who we are now as podcasters, as a brand, just as people in the true crime community. So we hope you understand that they will no longer be part of our canon, but that doesn't mean that we won't be coming at you with new stories every week like we always do.
1: Now that we covered that,
2: we want to issue a trigger warning for this week's episode. This case involves SA, otherwise known as sexual abuse. And so if that's a topic that is triggering to you, Please keep that in mind as you listen to it or choose not to. Heretofore in the episode, sexual assault
1: will be considered S.A. Without further ado, here is the case of James Pearson. This case involves acts I wish never happened to anyone, ever. As mentioned in the trigger warning, it involves S.A. at its center I'll be doing my best to tell this story with the utmost respect to the survivors within and SA survivors listening. We aim to do right and our best despite our privilege of not being survivors and or our ignorance. So with a little bit of grace, we do want to tell this story. Another important piece to note for this case is that some sources say that the murder took place february 5th and other sources say february 6th i will be going with february 6th as that's what the documentary said that was used as the main resource it is listed in the show notes Why I'm using that based on the documentary is because the family was involved, investigators were involved, and journalists were all involved in the making of that documentary. So we choose to believe that those involved would be aware of the dates and things discussed and would correct such an error. So we'll be moving forward with February 6th in this case. Just important to note that there are differences when you may be reading about the case on your own as well. So let's go ahead and get into the case. In the 1970s and 80s, the Pearson family was living what seemed to be a really idyllic life in Selden, New York. It was James, his wife Kathleen, his son Jimmy, or James Jr., and finally his daughters Cheryl and Joanne. As you look deeper though, it wasn't all rainbows and puppies. James, aka Jim, was Kind of
2: strict. Um, The family was a little bit militant. Mm -hmm. The resources also made it sound like it was a really middle class lifestyle. The wife was a homemaker. Um, The husband was an electrician. So he was really blue collar, worked with his hands, and, um, you know, may have been a little bit of a man's man, more gruff.
1: Definitely. He was head of the household and he sort of set the rules and the boundaries within. Mm They ate dinner at the same time every night. Once dinner was done, it was study time and finish up your homework time, which is not abnormal. It was just what are you supposed to be doing? Go do it kind of thing. The kids also were not allowed to watch TV. As you mentioned, James was the money maker and a strict dad Well, Kathleen had a really loving nature about her that really balanced out the family.
2: It was traditional, very old school. They were the yin and yang to each other, essentially.
1: Absolutely. The youngest, Joanne, was eight years younger than the middle sibling, Cheryl. She was born in 1976. Two years after her birth, Kathleen became ill. Quite literally, right after they celebrated Joanne's second birthday with cake, Kathleen was rushed to the hospital.
2: She didn't leave for nine months. And she actually had a rare blood disease, which, like you said, left her chronically hospitalized. So this was a very serious condition that Kathleen had. While her mom was sick, Cheryl really stepped
1: up as much as she could. She tried her best to take over what she could of Kathleen's duties. Uh, this role brought Cheryl really close to her dad and sister in some ways. Um of course it was a really difficult time for mm-hmm. the whole family. Cheryl was seldom able to leave her family to hang out with any friends and by the time she started high school, Cheryl was ready for the refuge every day of just being with friends, being in that routine you know, a little bit more of a predictable nature to life when she was at
2: school, being able to leave those duties at home that she had. I could totally see it. She's just able to be a little more carefree and be a kid when she's not at home, you know, doing dishes, doing the laundry, taking care of a younger sibling. It must have been really tough for her. She really built herself a life at school. Mm -hmm. She
1: was really well-liked. She was a cheerleader, so she was active at school in that way. And it's here at Newfield High School that Cheryl meets Rob Cuccio. Rob had his eye on Cheryl and he asked a mutual friend to introduce them, which I think is so cute. And they were introduced and they got close really quickly.
2: I actually have a quote from one of our resources where Rob says that it was love at first sight. And the quote goes on to say, I actually thought she was gorgeous. I still think she's gorgeous, but seeing her across the gym, it was one of those moments. She was quirky. She really was. She had a good sense of humor. She was just very nice, very genuine person. And I think that's adorable that he could tell from just seeing her across the gym that she was a good person and he wanted to be around that. I love that quote. So sweet. Puppy love at that time, for sure. Absolutely. So,
1: James, being the strict dad, he wasn't super thrilled when the two began to date. So, they built this friendship, they end up liking each other, they start dating. James is not super thrilled. However, Rob, too, was from a bit of a strict family. He was the son of a detective. Mm -hmm. Actually, a New York State detective. So with that, James said, you know, you come from this stricter family. You're going to have rules. You've got boundaries. She's got rules. She's got boundaries. Okay. You know, and he really noticed that Rob did seem to have Cheryl's best interests at heart. And he was treating Cheryl with a, a lot of respect. So by all means, while well, he wasn't super thrilled his daughter was dating,
2: okay. I'll give you my blessing. Like they didn't have to hide it or anything. That makes sense. I mean, it sounds like Rob is the type of guy that if someone's daughter is going to date, it's that type of guy that they would want them to date. Right. It's
1: pretty much all he could ask for at that time. As we mentioned, Cheryl's mom, Kathleen, was ill since two years after her sister was born. Early morning, February 13th, 1985, Kathleen unfortunately passed away due to the illness that she endured. Rob was right there to comfort Cheryl. The day her mom passed, she went to school to pick up her books and things she would need. She knew she was going to be gone Mm -hmm. just to be with family and mourn and, you know, just doing all of the things that people need to do when they're in a bereavement period. So he was right there when she went to go pick up her books and and just be that friend and be that person there for her. Less than a year after Kathleen passed, on the morning of February 6th, 1986, Cheryl's getting ready for school, kind of rushing around like any other morning. But when she looks out the window, finally, she sees James dead on the driveway. So she runs out. She ends up going to a neighbor's house asking for help. The neighbors bring Cheryl and her sister Joanne into the house. It's unclear at that point if the neighbors had run back to the girl's house with them and brought them into their own house or if the neighbors brought them into they the neighbor's house,
2: if that makes sense. Either way, they're just making sure the girls are okay and safe before moving ahead with what they need to do.
1: Right. They are getting them into one of the two respective houses. They say, look, girls, hey, it's okay. He must have slipped on some ice. It's February in New York. He's he's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. Well, police arrive and they call for an ambulance. The ambulance gets there. First aid is administered the first responders notice a bullet wound is found in his head and bullet holes
2: are also observed in his jacket. So he definitely didn't slip on ice as originally suspected.
1: Yeah, they noticed pretty quickly that this was not much of an accident. They had also taken note that there were smaller caliber bullet casings all around him. He was pronounced dead at the scene, and it was labeled a homicide, like right away. The police did go ahead and inform the girls, both minors, mind you, that their only surviving parent
2: was now deceased as well. And for our listeners, if they're wondering, the older son had already moved out at this time, so he wasn't living at home.
1: Yes, it was very much just Cheryl and Joanne in the home at this point. And even Cheryl, too, was starting to get older and getting ready to soon leave. But she was still just 16 about at the time. Okay, Cheryl being the older one and the one that found her father, they lean on her and start questioning her and asking her things about her dad. Do you know anybody that would want to kill him? She says, nobody told me somebody killed him. They're like, we know you've been informed that he was shot. Why are you yeah, why is pretending she... you didn't know? It's very odd. They noted it. That's an unusual response to the question, too. They definitely took note of that. And she proceeded to even be a little bit more off during the questioning. She proceeded to ask about the cologne that the detective was wearing. She asked him are you wearing chaps? Very familiar 80s cologne here. And he says, yeah, you know, I am.
2: But he was totally caught off guard because... They're there to talk about her recently murdered father, and she's talking about cologne. It's not looking good. it I mean, red flags galore.
1: It definitely took them a bit off guard, and they were noting this unusual behavior. But they weren't quite sure and couldn't quite pinpoint in what part of this investigation this would or wouldn't matter yet. According to Cheryl, she asked about the cologne because she recognized it, and she recognized it because that's what her boyfriend Rob wore.
2: And as we know nowadays, not everyone reacts the same way when in a stressful situation, when a loved one has passed away or been murdered. So maybe they're able to look at this as not necessarily a red flag, but someone who is in shock or unable to process what's happened to them.
1: Sure. And for now, they really were just marking it as, hey, this wasn't a normal interaction with a teenager whose dad, their only living parent, was just murdered. Mm -hmm. Detectives immediately start looking for answers even more, and they decide, we're going to search the home. James was an electrician, but the home to the investigators seemed to have many lavish items and components to it. It just didn't seem to fit with the income they were aware of. Now, this is not to say that electricians don't make nice money, because to be honest, absolutely, yes, yes, they can. It's a very skilled field, but what they were finding in this home was just to a level that really indicated to detectives that James had another source of income. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like someone saying, hey, I earned $200,000, but they've got this home that shows, look, somebody would need like a million dollars a year to own this. So they're not bashing and we're not bashing electrician income, but we're noting what detectives were saying, which is, hey, this would require another income. Right, there's a disparity here. Yes, there's a disparity. And they wanted to know, what was that other source of income? They also found in the home during the search an arsenal of guns. One of the guns included in the arsenal was a machine gun. What was he protecting? That's what they wanted to know. Why did he need an arsenal and moreover, why in this arsenal do you need a machine gun? According to Cheryl, her dad just was not somebody to be crossed. He would even shoot up the car or the tires of tenants in his properties if they were late on rent. I, he had at least one property. I'm a little unsure if there were multiple um, he didn't have a lot of friends and the ones that he did have were business venture partners or lawyers. So yes, it seemed that Jim had side things going on. He had a property or properties and was involved in certain business ventures. We don't know too much more about that, but he definitely had other sources of income. But what really really struck detectives is that they found this little black book that belonged to James. So they're hearing, okay, he's not somebody to be crossed. And then they find this little black book that belonged to James that had names in it. And next to the names were dollar amounts. They wanted to know, what are these dollar amounts? Do they owe you money? Is that where this homicide stemmed from? Did you make an enemy with this money being loaned out, were you involved in organized crime? What are we looking at here? So they had all these little odd things poking out at them. The little black book, the the daughters not really acting as to what they would think would be normal in the situation or off during some questioning. Just lots of all of the guns they found. Things were just a little all
2: over the place, and they were trying to put it together. Right. It it sounds like what they were able to find was just the tip of the iceberg. They knew there was more underneath the surface that they were going to have to dig for.
1: Quite literally, because investigators also come across as part of the Pearson home, a subterranean storage garage. So basically, it looked like what a storage unit looks like but it was where the basement is so in a state like new york that has seasons this could be where somebody keeps a lawn mower during winter when they're not mowing a lawn for example Mm -hmm. or who knows whatever they want to keep down there it's theirs and it's where you would think a basement would be but it's a garage so subterranean garage is what we're going to call it and what they were calling it so inside this garage they state that they found, quote, expensive toys, end quote. Now, the daughter notes in the documentary that James did have motorcycles and antique cars and things of that nature. However, it wasn't listed exactly what was specifically in the garage. So I can't say that those were the items that were in the garage. But again, we can say, quote, expensive toys, end quote, were in the garage. So just more stuff that's showing, He's making more money than one might perceive. And where are all these things coming from? I should correct myself a little bit because they did list specifically one thing they found in the garage that was very interesting to investigators. They found a whole freaking recording system. What? he would record and listen in on all of the phone calls that were happening upstairs inside the house. Once they find this recording system unit thing, detectives ask Cheryl, what's up with this recording thing in the garage we found? What's up with the little black book? What's up with the guns? What is going on? Like they're starting to piece together, right? All of these things that they've been finding Over this short period of time since his death, she does not really have an answer for him.
0: Is your daily grind getting you down? A ThermoSpa's hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now, and for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment.
1: In the meantime, an autopsy confirms that James was shot five times from behind with a twenty two caliber rifle, the lethal shot being one to the back of his head. The motive for his death, as we've been mentioning here over the last few moments, was still in question. What was being kept in mind at this point basically was just his temper and his assets that he had at the time. All of the fancy toys in the subterranean garage, all of the lavish items they found inside of the home. These were the things they were trying to use to connect to a possible motive and possible perpetrator. So investigators take him one step further, and they comb his bank accounts. They discovered that James had an estate worth over $1 million. But that's in 80s money. hmm Exactly. It's $2.4 in today's money. An electrician, again, is a great career, but investigators knew that not all of this money was just coming from electrician work. They were dead set on figuring out just how he got this date to this level of worth, thinking that it would probably give them the motive for death and possibly link them to the perpetrator, as I just mentioned. Come to find out, James was stealing lights, wires, etc., all the goodies he needed from his regular electrician job, and he was using the material under the table for side jobs, Could this scheme have made somebody angry enough to kill him? We don't know. Just as investigators start to walk down that path and start to look to see if this scheme could somehow be related to his murder, they get a call that changes everything. That call was from Rob Cuccio's father.
2: Who, for our listeners, just as a reminder, is the daughter's boyfriend.
1: Yes. So, the daughter's boyfriend's father calls. He tells investigators, "Look, Jimmy, James son, had recently been cut from the will. They were not on good terms. This could be a possible motive. This is something I've been thinking about. Maybe you
2: should look into it kind of thing. And he's a New York State trooper, so he is familiar with what motivates people to do crimes. So I I actually really admire him calling in and just giving his fellow law enforcement a heads up on" you know, a lead they could follow.
1: One could absolutely think that with being a New York State detective, that he would feel that sense of duty and responsibility to relay that information. Definitely, especially with it being a case that's so close to home for him, being his son's girlfriend's father. They take this information seriously and they bring Jimmy in. He denies involvement and tells them something else that blows them away. He tells them, look into my sister and her boyfriend, Rob. He's basically telling them, I think they have something to do with it. He's kind of pointing the finger the other way. Investigators have no further evidence that Jimmy did have anything to do with his father's death, and they let him go, of course. And they decide, look, We've got nothing to lose here. we got to look into these claims about the sister. Let's look into the sister and Rob Cuccio. Let's check out
2: Cheryl and Rob. And it makes sense because she's the one who found him, like we mentioned earlier.
1: Yeah, it would make sense when you start to break it down. Okay, let's look into Cheryl. They start this by examining the family structure. They start to see that James was actually pretty abusive in nature and that the two oldest children, Cheryl and Jimmy, endured much of that abuse at the hands of their father. Cheryl recalls trying to be on her best behavior at all times and really not ever hearing, I love you. It's also discovered that James was a bit off about his daughter's budding romance. I mentioned before that he wasn't all that thrilled about it. James became very protective and overbearing. Rob recalls that he felt a little more like a jealous boyfriend as opposed to just fatherly strictness. Something was off. I won't get into great detail for Cheryl's privacy, but Rob mentions a story of abuse that he was there to witness. He was astounded. He could not believe what he had seen. And when you really think about it, when you witness an abusive act and it's done in front of you, you've got to think, What the hell goes on behind closed doors then? Especially if you're somebody who loves this person that is unfortunately receiving the abuse, if you will, in this case. So it's just something Rob will never forget. Police discovered that it is true for sure that Jimmy was cut from the will, as Rob's dad had told them, and that Cheryl stood to inherit that entire million-dollar estate. They want to know a little more And they bring Rob in for questioning. Rob recalls the investigators kind of doing the good cop, bad cop thing on him. Just trying to get a confession or something like that from Rob. Anything they could get. Because they're starting to feel like there's something going on here. At one very crucial point, Rob is saying, I didn't do it. And they say, okay, if you didn't do it, then who did? They're basically implying, because we know you know who it was. And Rob's
2: response, well, it wasn't me because I paid the guy who did it. Wow. I mean, what a response in an interrogation. I I bet they weren't expecting that.
1: What a response in an interrogation, nonetheless, when you're looking at a 16, 17 year old. This is a kid. This is a high school student telling you, I paid the guy who killed my girlfriend's father. So, bombshell. Police now have enough to arrest Rob at this point. And they also had enough to arrest Cheryl Pearson for solicitation to murder her father. So they actually take Rob with them to go get Cheryl. I also feel like that's super 80s, but I could be totally wrong. He says when they get to her house, look, Cheryl, it's okay. I told him everything. Basically, the gig's up. Mm-hmm. Her paternal grandma was there, James's mom. She witnessed the whole arrest. She saw the whole thing goes goes down. It's a truly unbelievable moment. Her granddaughter was arrested for the murder of her son, her teenage granddaughter. I can't even imagine how the whole family was feeling and what they were thinking. This was just a huge moment in the case. Well,
2: they essentially lose two people in the family.
1: Right. Down at the station, Cheryl admits to detectives that she offered a friend from school $1,000 to kill her father. She explains further that there was SA going on at the hands of her father towards her. It was unfortunately something that had begun when she was 12 while her mother was sick. She endured that SA at the hands of her father until the day he died. Rob figured out about the essay and what was going on in that home as the relationship grew. He figured it out on his own. He would question Cheryl a little bit about it, just, you know, out of love and trying to understand what was going on, how he could help her. And she denied it at the beginning when he began questioning her. But eventually she confided in him that, yes, she was enduring essay at the hands of her father. Cheryl goes on to say that Her father dropped hints that he would move on to her sister, Joanne, if she wouldn't comply with his attacks. This scared Cheryl beyond what anyone could imagine or that anybody who hasn't endured this could even imagine. She wants to protect her sister. She hates what's happening to her. It's just the absolute, the horrificness that one could, I don't need to elaborate it's then in November of 1985 that Cheryl sees this news story. This news story is about a woman that hired somebody to kill her husband. So she starts thinking, this is the only way I can stop this essay from happening to me. I can hire somebody to kill my father. This could be the way. This is my only way out. I've got to do this. So she finds somebody in homeroom that was willing to do it. And she sort of fields it out first. She starts by talking about the news story. Hey, has anybody heard about the news story? Who would be so crazy to do that for that woman? You know, who would be so crazy to kill that woman's husband for them? Like how, you know, crazy do you have to be to do that? And one of the kids pipes up and says, I'd do it if the money was right. I'd kill somebody for someone else. And so she goes, that's the person I'm going to ask to kill my father. This kid's name was Sean Pika. A week after she had kind of fielded in homeroom, she officially offered him $1,000 to kill her dad. Rob was also aware that all of this was happening, but he wasn't really sure if Sean would actually do it. So he was kind of like, okay, like you're telling me this is happening, but like, are you sure this this kid's really gonna go kill your dad. like that takes a lot of guts and we're we're pretty young, kind of thing, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Sean didn't actually really know what was going on in the home when he accepted the $1,000 offer. But after they started planning and getting everything organized, he did find out. So this gave him even more courage to finally get it done. It took a little while though, because remember it was November when that news story that kind of inspired the idea was released. And this is February when it happened. So it took him a while. To build up the courage to pull the trigger. Literally. The night before there was a basketball game. He runs past Cheryl, who's cheering in the game. And he says, it's going to happen. I'm going to do it. So if you think about it, November, December, January, February, were like two, three months down the road here. It's, again, at a basketball game, he tells her, I'm gonna do it. In the documentary, Sean basically says, I didn't really have the courage to say no, I couldn't. By the time he found out what was happening in the home and just that idea that teenagers go through that peer pressure, he was afraid to even say no or back out, I guess is better verbiage in this case. With that, he arrived that very next morning, February 6th, 1986, with his rifle in hand and shot James five times. Cheryl and Rob gave him $400 to start until they could get the rest of the money as things calmed down.
2: And in one of our resources, it actually mentions that the $400 was from James's own safe. So they used his own money to pay his murderer so going back a little bit we were talking about
1: how rob went with police to go get cheryl so Mm -hmm. now we're going to kind of get back to that cheryl admits the whole story that we were just talking about to police hearing that news story hiring sean offering him 1000 giving him the 400 all of that so she admits everything to police by february 13th All three of them, Rob, Sean, Cheryl, are all at Suffolk County Court for an arraignment on second-degree murder charges for the death of James Pearson. So far, Cheryl's claims of SA were not yet substantiated, which is just kind of gross because when you're dealing with abuse of any kind— Asking somebody who has been abused to substantiate. Number one, that can just be incredibly difficult, but it's also just very painful and not a fun experience. So I'm saying all of this with that in mind. Cheryl did drop a bombshell though. She says, you know what? I think I can substantiate this. I think I can prove this. She says, I'm pregnant as a result of the essay. The community finds this out. They are stunned. They become a community divided, though. Some are absolutely for Rob and Cheryl, believe everything that had happened to Cheryl, and then the other says she's lying, she just wanted to get rid of her father, whatever, just awful things. Meanwhile, Rob and Cheryl await their fate with the law. Prosecutions claiming that Cheryl wanted to end her father's control and inherit the estate, and they further claim the essay allegations were entirely false. The defense contends that she didn't have a choice but to have her father killed in order to protect her sister and in the essay that she had long endured. Today, Cheryl says she was a desperate 16-year-old kid with no way out of the situation. No clue how to get out of it. Backing up Cheryl's statements, investigators found that friends of the family indeed had suspicions about James and Cheryl's relationship. It's horrific that I have to say this, but no one ever did anything. Rob mentions that, sure, they may have not wanted to believe it. They may have been afraid of James, but it's so incredibly sad that no one did anything. Cheryl and Rob maintain the relationship as they await the aforementioned fate of the law, so to speak. And this was despite the future for both of them being uncertain. Pregnant Cheryl makes bail with the help of her brother after about two weeks. In March 1986, Cheryl was rushed to the hospital while on bail and ended up having a miscarriage. I don't have an exact date, but this was reported by March 19th, 1986, that it had happened. This allows DNA tests to be run, and it reveals who the father is. It turns out that the father of the baby was Rob, Cheryl's boyfriend. This new finding put her defense on shaky ground. It's unfortunate to say that this pregnancy, had it been due to the SA, would have made clear that SA was happening which is just so heartbreaking because what a difficult thing she would have had to go through even thinking that it could be as a result of S.A. And then now that it's not, it ruins her defense. This is just... It's horrifying. It is. It's so horrifying. It's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. That being said, Cheryl went ahead and pleaded guilty to manslaughter. On April 7th, 1987, Rob appeared before court. His charges were dropped to solicitation and he received five years probation. Sean Pika pleaded down to manslaughter and he was sentenced to 24 years in prison. In September of 1987, the court holds its pre-sentence hearing for Cheryl there were at least 20 people at this hearing that were able to testify that they believed something was wrong in that home in the pearson home but that even though they felt that they didn't intervene because they were afraid to james was not a man you wanted to go up against or confront and that's exactly why they didn't do anything
2: when they knew something was off in seeing how intimidating he could be you know in the examples you gave us earlier in the episode, I can understand why people would be afraid to get on his bad side. Right.
1: Cheryl was next to take the stand, and she was really compelling as well, and her story stayed consistent. Those items together made Cheryl appear tr- really truthful to the judge. He, three weeks later, sentenced her to six months in county jail with five years probation. Some people in the community saw this sentence as too harsh and others saw it as Cheryl and Rob getting away with murder. So it was still a community divided. Cheryl says that when the jail bars closed, it was one of the first times in a long time that she felt that she was safe for obvious reasons
2: when considering the essay. That's heartbreaking to hear that it took for her to go to jail to feel safe. And it, it just weighs heavy on my heart to hear that she had to go through all that. I just have no words for it. I don't even think we need to say more.
1: After three months, Cheryl was released from jail for good behavior. Rob was there waiting for her. He says that seeing her free for the first time was one of the best feelings he's ever had. There's some news footage on the documentary of the moment too. And in it, Cheryl gives some parting words, I'll call them, parting from the jail. I just want to say thank you to all the people who supported me. And it was rough, but I made it. Sean Pika served 16 years and was released in 2002. He now sits on the board of directors as executive director for an organization called Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison. He even works with the governor's task force to help run prison college programs. Cheryl and Rob, we must be all wondering what happened with them since they were released in 1987. They got married. They got married in 1987, and to this day, they are still together. They have two beautiful daughters. They are also really extremely close to Cheryl's siblings to this day as well. In 2016, Cheryl and Rob Cuccio released a book, a a memoir. The title does have a couple of triggering words in it, so I'm going to leave it out of this episode, but you can DM us, email us, Google Cheryl Cuccio book, it'll pop up for you. I'm going to leave with a quote, as I always love to do. Cheryl gives us a quote about why she decided to write a memoir with Rob. She says, I never had a voice as a child, and it was time to have a voice now, because I never want anybody to feel alone. I want to be able to just tell everybody that's been through it or is going through it that it's not your shame to carry and that people will believe you and it does not have to define the rest of your life. Powerful words. I really look forward to reading that book. This is where we're going to leave this week's episode. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Podcast at gmail.com, and the Murder Diaries Podcast